Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time we covered Luke's account of the famous Sermon on the Mount. This is reported neatly and succinctly by Luke in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 49. But it's also reported in explicit detail by Matthew in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to chapter 7, verse 29. Matthew gave it three whole chapters. In this session, we're going to investigate Matthew's account of that sermon. Some of this might be repetitive because of the way we're going over this, because we're doing a synchronized study. Whenever we've come across an event that was reported by two or more witnesses, we would try to synchronize those reports into one report. It's not hard to do if you have all of the passages right there in front of you. So when we cover something like, oh, Jesus' baptism or the debate between John the Baptist and the Pharisees, stuff like that, what I would do is first give out the biblical references of all the reports involved of that event so that you could look it up for yourself and follow along, and then we'd actually read from the report that had the most while including along the way anything that might be different or more elaborate from the other reports. But the Sermon on the Mount is something that you really can't synchronize without ruining the flow of the sermon. I mean, it's a sermon. It's not a dialogue between different people. It's not a report of action. It's a speech. It's a sermon. To synchronize Luke's record of that sermon with Matthew's would damage it. So last time, we just investigated Luke's record of that sermon and then saved Matthew's record of it for this session. I wanted to give each record its own special attention. And as we go through Matthew's account of it today, some of it will be familiar to you if you tuned in last time. Not only some of the biblical content, but the commentary as well. I didn't want to skip out on Matthew's commentary just because I've already done this in Luke. But be patient and try to pay attention, even if you think some of this is by way of review, because it connects with the flow of Matthew's whole account of it. The biggest problem I've had with trying to build a commentary on Matthew's record of the sermon is that there's no such thing as too much commentary. And that's the problem. Each verse could easily be the basis for an hour-long study. And that's the problem because the whole sermon is three chapters long. Going through this, I have to decide what to talk about and what to skip. And as we go through it, you will notice a lot of similarities with what we just read in Luke, but there's a whole lot more detail, a whole lot of extra points here and there in between. So let's dive in. To set the stage here, let's just look real quick at Luke's prologue to the sermon. Starting in Luke 6, verse 17, it says, Jesus came down with them and took his stand on a level spot with a crowd of his disciples and a vast throng of people from all over Judea, Jerusalem, the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to listen to him and to be cured of their diseases, even those who were disturbed and troubled with unclean spirits. And they were being healed also. And all the multitude were seeking to touch him. For healing power was all the while going forth from him and curing them all, saving them from severe illnesses and calamities. And Jesus solemnly lifting up his eyes on his disciples, he said, and then Luke gives his shortened, highlighted version of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... And then Matthew records his version of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, folks, there's some debate out there concerning whether or not these two accounts of the same sermon are actually two accounts of the same sermon. Some believe these might be reports of two completely different sermons that were given at two completely different occasions that are assumed to be two reports of the same event because the settings and the sermon itself have some similarities. 
they point out that Luke says that Jesus came down with them and took his stand, while Matthew says that Jesus went up. And they may have a point, but if these two reports are of the same event, then this contradiction really isn't a contradiction. It's easily resolved. Jesus could have come down to take a stand on a level spot, just like Luke reported, to which Luke then follows to say that surrounding him were a great crowd of his disciples and a vast throng of people from all over. Matthew doesn't mention that, but then says, seeing the crowds, then he went up on the mountain, taking his disciples with him and so forth. You know, he had to go down amongst them to heal them but then went back up a little bit to preach the sermon. Another key difference between these two reports is that Jesus uses the phrase kingdom of God consistently in the account that's provided by Luke, while in the account provided by Matthew, Jesus sometimes uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And while those two phrases sound like two different titles for the same thing, they really aren't, the more you study this. In those two phrases, the word of is used differently, because of the ownership of the word. When it says kingdom of God, the word of ties the king together with the kingdom, meaning it's a word of ownership. And that ownership applies to the whole of the word kingdom. The whole kingdom is God's, not just part of it, all of it. The kingdom of God. But when it says kingdom of heaven, the word of is still used as a word of ownership, but it's also a word of division. It's like saying one of five pieces or two of six apples. It's still a word of ownership, but also one of partitioning. It's like saying the town of Texas versus the state of Texas. Is the state the same as the town? No. When you say the state of Texas, you mean all of Texas. But when you say the town of Texas, you mean only one part of Texas, the town. Heaven itself is the kingdom of God. Where is heaven? Well, heaven is outside our physical universe. It transcends space-time. It's where the Father's throne is. That's heaven. That's the kingdom of God. So if heaven is the kingdom of God, then what is the kingdom of heaven? Technically, it doesn't exist yet. But it's prophesied to be inside our physical universe, inside our space-time. It's where the Son's throne is. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the Messiah over the planet Earth and our physical universe. When the angel Gabriel visited Mary, he told her, that her son would rule on the throne of David. Now, the reason why this causes a lot of confusion is because the current definitions of kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven exist mainly because of the time period that we're in right now. Right now, as we speak, the kingdom of God is heaven and heaven only. But in the future, when Jesus rules the universe, it's at that point that the definition of kingdom of God will extend to include the universe. Everything everywhere will be the kingdom of God then. But it's the rule of Jesus Christ over the earth that will be called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven will obviously be part of the kingdom of God, so both phrases are the same in a sense. But only in the sense that when you're in the kingdom of heaven, you'll also be in the kingdom of God. Kind of like when you're in the town of Texas, you're also in the state of Texas. You can't be in Dallas of Texas and not also be in the state of Texas. But you can be in the state of Texas and not be in Dallas. And it's because of all of this that some believe these two accounts of the Sermon on the Mount are actually two different events, because Luke's account only uses the phrase kingdom of God, while Matthew's uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. And also Luke's account is less than a single chapter long, while Matthew's account spans three chapters. And they use all of this as evidence that these two accounts might not be reporting the same event, and they might have a point. 
But the differences could just be the result of the same report being recorded from two separate viewpoints. And that's a high possibility, because Luke wasn't there. He was an investigative reporter who researched all of this out and reported the highlights. He only reported what he could confirm from two or more sources like any good investigative reporter would do. And that's why the sermon that he recorded was more of a bulletin of the whole thing. It was just less than a chapter long. But Matthew was actually there. And he reported this as an eyewitness. Matthew was formerly a customs official, and with that occupation came the skill of knowing shorthand. That's why his account is 2.5 chapters longer than Luke's, because he was actually there to record every single word in shorthand as he heard it live. Luke didn't have that luxury. He had to piece it together from interviews. And the reason why Matthew used the phrase kingdom of heaven was because his entire account presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who's prophesied to rule on David's throne. Luke was presenting Jesus as the son of man to the Gentile readers. Both accounts of the sermon, though, are specifically addressed to disciples. Not just the twelve who became apostles, but disciples. We tend to get those two terms confused. A disciple is a follower of Christ. Anybody can be a disciple if they choose to be one. I'm one. You can be one. But you don't choose to be an apostle. That's a position that is appointed by Jesus himself. So where both accounts say the sermon was addressed to his disciples, that's more than the twelve. That's all the others who were there who chose to follow. A great crowd was there for healing, and they heard it too, but both accounts say that Jesus was speaking to his disciples, those who chose to follow him. And I bring that up to point out, if you're a follower of Christ, this sermon is for you. Now folks, of all the passages in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most familiar, and therein lies the problem. It seems that it's always the most familiar passages of Scripture that wind up being misunderstood the most, not only by the world, but by Christians, sometimes especially by Christians, because it's so familiar to us. We don't give it any real thought because we know it already. We think. But when you look at the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, those familiar portions of it take on a whole different meaning. Throughout the entire sermon, it's a surprise to discover that there's nothing in the sermon that addresses how to be saved. There's no altar call, no John 3.16 type passage. There's no pathway, no spiritual or mystical hint of it in there anywhere. And one of the reasons for that is because it's addressed to followers of Christ. It's already assumed that you're saved. And as we go through this sermon, you're going to experience a wide range of emotions. You'll go from one side of the spectrum to the next before it's over. Parts of it are simple, down-to-earth, common-sense principles, just good sense. Parts of it are very, very deep concerning what a follower of Christ is to expect on the planet Earth as a result of their discipleship. Parts of it are very encouraging and comforting because Jesus himself seems to step outside time and speak directly to you and acknowledge your personal situation, tells you why it's there, and then lets you know what to expect because of that situation when you get to heaven. It's very exciting, very encouraging. But then there's also some discouragement in there too. Because this sermon is God's personal view of what he considers to be acceptable human conduct. And he sets the bar extremely high. But the reason he does is because he knows he's already talking to people who are already saved. So this sermon isn't about how to get into heaven or how to stay out of hell. Because if it was, then we'd all be in very serious trouble. At one point in Matthew's account, Jesus even goes so far to say, Be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
If this sermon is about how to get into heaven, then we're all in trouble. And yet, he never says, well, try the best you can, but don't worry about screwing up, because after all, you're only human. He doesn't do that. At no time does he do that. This is the New Testament equivalent to the Ten Commandments. These are his commandments, not suggestions. It's God's detailed outline of what he considers to be acceptable human conduct. And there's no loophole. None. On the one hand. On the other hand, before we're through, it'll be obvious, blatantly and painfully obvious, that no man has ever successfully lived up to what's described in this sermon. No man except for one. And that's the one who's giving the sermon. But anyway, enough of that, enough review. Let's get started. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, let me stop right there. Two big things already. See, this, folks, this is going to be hard. <laughs> um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Already there's two subtle things there that are extremely important. First off, Luke's account just said poor which usually draws you to think of financial hardship. But Matthew's account here says poor in spirit. That covers a whole lot more ground. And the second big key difference here, Luke's account says yours is the kingdom of God, meaning heaven. It can also mean the entire universe if we're talking about the time period in which Jesus has taken over. But here, Matthew's account says kingdom of heaven. He's being more specific. He's speaking specifically of the time when Jesus rules over the earth. We'll continue to notice this throughout Matthew's record here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, it's interesting. This sermon is addressed to followers of Christ. And the first thing Jesus does to identify with his followers is he brings up the poor in spirit and those who mourn. I think that's telling. Why would followers of Christ be synonymous with those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn? As a follower of Christ, the more you attempt to follow him, the closer you are to him. And the closer you are to him, the more you will see things around you the way he sees them. Ecclesiastes says, with wisdom comes much grief. Remember, we learned when Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the desert, who is the God of this world? Until Jesus rules over it, it's presently occupied and ruled by Satan and his forces. It's his planet, temporarily, but right now we're under an enemy occupation. And in addition to that, the closer you are to God, then the more Satan tries to derail you, and those assaults are vicious. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, there's another interpretation of what Jesus means when he says, the poor in spirit and those who mourn. And I think this is an interesting one. When we hear the phrase poor in spirit, our modern vernacular makes us think of depression. And depression seems to fit even more once you read the very next verse where he brings up those who mourn. They sound connected, but when you remove all of our modern day cliches and sayings, and take it literally. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What spirit is Jesus talking about? Some commentators think that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And when I first heard that interpretation, I dismissed it for two very good reasons. Number one, why would Jesus say that people without the Holy Spirit are blessed? That seems to go against everything else we've heard Jesus say. And the second reason why I dismissed it was because Jesus was addressing his followers. His disciples. 
Those who are already saved, can a person be saved without the Holy Spirit? Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that they couldn't be unless a man is born again. Remember? And then all throughout Paul's letters, the Holy Spirit is mentioned as an integral part of salvation. When you accept the work on the cross, you're reborn in the Holy Spirit and you're stamped and sealed with the Holy Spirit. But as I thought about that, then it hit me. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was given before the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost, recorded in the book of Acts. And then I suddenly remember Jesus telling people after his resurrection, I have to go to be with my Father so that I can send you another comforter, meaning the Holy Spirit. So the followers of Jesus who were listening to this sermon were already saved, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And he's telling them, blessed are you for its coming. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. By what? The other comforter that Jesus will send in his place. Now, he doesn't get into all of that here, but he's letting them know, you who follow me, but are still lacking in the Holy Spirit. You who are mourning over that lack. Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, and you shall be comforted. You see now why some think Matthew's record of this sermon and Luke's might actually be two different sermons. The end message is completely different once you break away the language barriers. In Luke's record, this portion of the sermon has a completely different goal. Jesus said in Luke's account, Blessed are you who are poor, period, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your consolation. Completely different point. So Luke either recorded a different sermon or he recorded a portion of the same sermon that for whatever reason Matthew chose to omit. But I don't want to get into all of that again. Next verse. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Folks, how many times have we heard that verse and never stopped to think about what it's really saying? Everybody knows this verse. In an episode of Sanford and Son, after coming home from a vacation, Fred's son, Lamont, noticed that his father had stolen several things from the motel that they were staying in. Towels, ashtrays, several bars of soap, shampoo. And to top it all off, he stole a Bible. He stole the Bible that was in the motel room. And Lamont said to him, Pop, doesn't it say in that Bible, Thou shalt not steal? And Fred says, Well, yeah, but it also says, The meek shall inherit the earth. And Lamont says, So? And Fred says, well, I figured we got to start somewhere. You know, I mean, it makes a pretty good point. Jesus made the statement 2,000 years ago, when have you ever seen the meek inherit the earth? Never. The meek get trampled on, driven over, ignored, and left behind. It's the strong, the loud, the influential, and the powerful who run things. So what did Jesus mean when he said the meek shall inherit the earth? Well, first of all, who are the meek? What does Jesus mean when he uses the word meek? When we hear that word, we think of Tweety Bird. But that phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth, is also found in Psalm 37, verse 11. And the first ten verses of that psalm that lead up to that famous verse is the Holy Spirit's explanation of what it means to be meek. So let's get over there real quick and take a look at it so you'll get just an idea of what it really means to be meek. It says, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, for he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. 
He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger, and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. The meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. That's the first half of Psalm 37. That's what it means to be meek. But reading that, you'll notice this isn't like reading one of the Proverbs, where it lays out good sense. Hey, if you do this, then that will happen. If you do that, then this will happen. A man who does this will get this in return. That's not what this is. This isn't a proverb of wisdom or cause and effect. This is talking about something that will happen when God takes over the earth. The wicked shall be no more, it says. Whether you're meek or not is irrelevant. One day the wicked shall be no more, period. Indeed, you will look carefully to find their place, but it shall be no more. Who's going to be left standing to inherit what the wicked leave behind? The meek shall inherit the earth. Something else. Notice the theme throughout this whole psalm. Notice it's not talking about heaven. It's talking about the planet earth. As Christians, we tend to look forward to getting out of here so we can live in heaven, where everything is under God's direct rule and things are exactly the way they're supposed to be. We look forward to that. And that's a good thing to look forward to, but we forget all of the verses that talk about God setting things right on the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How many times have we heard this verse and never stopped to think about what it's really saying? Will the meek really inherit the earth, the literal earth? Or is this just a figure of speech? Look at these words very carefully, folks. The word inherit is used. It's talking of inheritance. And that inheritance being what? The planet Earth. Why does it use the word inherit? You could say it's being inherited from those who lost the Earth because God took it back, but don't make assumptions. What does the Bible say it means? The Bible is its own best commentary. You ever have a question about a verse in the Bible? Just keep reading the Bible because the answer to that question is somewhere in there. What does this mean, inherit? Romans chapter 8, verse 17. The first part of that chapter talks about us being adopted into God's family, becoming adopted sons of God. That means we're adopted into a royal family. That's a big deal. And when it gets to verse 17, Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says, If we are his children, then we are his heirs also, heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. Now, before we finish that verse, let's break this down. Heirs of God, meaning the Father, and joint heirs of Christ, meaning the Son. Those are two kings, folks. The Father's throne is in heaven. That's called the kingdom of God. That's heaven. The Son's throne will be on the earth, and it's called the kingdom of heaven. And what Paul is saying in the book of Romans is since we've been adopted into a royal family, we are heirs of the Father, but also joint heirs with Christ, who is prophesied to set up his own kingdom over the planet Earth, ruling from David's throne. We're joint heirs of that king. But concerning that inheritance, there is a condition. Read the rest of Romans chapter 8, verse 17. It says, we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if, 
if we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified together with him. Does that mean we can lose our salvation? No. If you're adopted into God's family, you're permanently a member of that family. It doesn't say anything about losing our adoption. That's why the Bible uses the phrase being reborn. Well, you can't become unborn from a family once you're born into it. So your position in that family is secure. But you can lose your inheritance. All throughout the Bible are examples of that. The prodigal son who left and squandered away his inheritance. Remember that one? He lost his inheritance, but he never lost his sonship. At no time did he ever cease from being the man's son. So if we're born into this royal family by the Holy Spirit, and we're adopted sons and daughters of God, our positions are very well secure, folks. And there's a whole lot waiting for us in heaven that are unconditional gifts of God's love. One of which Jesus will bring up later on in the gospel. He'll say that when he leaves the earth to go to the Father, one of the things that he will do in heaven while he's there is to prepare a place for us. We hear that quoted at funerals. That's an unconditional promise to those who have been adopted into the family of God. But there are other promises that are not unconditional. They are conditional. Some of those promises fall under the category of rewards. In other words, if you do this while you're here, then you'll receive a reward. If you don't do this, then you won't receive the reward. You still get into heaven, but you won't get whatever reward it is that particular promise is talking about. The other set of conditional promises fall under the category of inheritance. As sons and daughters of God, both the Father and joint heirs with Christ, we have an inheritance waiting for us in those future kingdoms. But between now and when we get there, we can lose that inheritance. Now, we won't lose our salvation, but we can lose our inheritance. So how do we keep our inheritance? Paul told us one of the ways we keep our inheritance in his letter to the Romans, by suffering with Jesus so that we may also be glorified with him. That's why Jesus tells us here, the meek shall inherit the earth. The meek know that kingdom is coming. The pleasure of the meek is in their relationship with the Lord. Their trust is in him, not themselves. Their rest is in him, not themselves, because everything they are is put into his care. They fret for nothing, not even the wicked who go about their way causing wicked schemes to pass, because they know the wicked's days are numbered. One day the wicked shall be no more, and the meek shall inherit the earth. That's why Jesus started this sermon off mentioning the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom of God, not the Father's throne, but the kingdom of heaven. It's earth-based. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, the Bible teaches all over the place that there is really no such thing as human righteousness. As a matter of fact, the word self-righteous is always used in a derogatory sense. True righteousness comes from God. After being reborn in the Holy Spirit, we are declared righteous. After that, as time goes by, we're to keep the lines of communication between us and God open at all times so that we never get the feeling like we're hiding anything. First John says that if we confess our sins, he will be faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's got nothing to do with keeping yourself saved. That's a done deal. But even after we're saved, we have a tendency to either try to put on self-righteousness, which can't be done, Isaiah says that our righteousness are as filthy rags. That's one extreme. The other extreme 
is to allow the existence of our own unrighteousness to build up as a wedge between us and the God who saved us. God already knows about it. He's already saved us from it. We know that deep inside, so we feel guilty and we go into spiritual hiding. First John says, that's ridiculous. Just get it out there. Confess it and move on. Hebrews chapter 4 gets into all of this too, talking about being bold before the throne of grace. Folks, that's nuts when you think about it. Being bold before the throne of grace. How do you do that? And why? Well, it's because he died for us while we were his enemies. Now that we're his sons, what do we have to be afraid of? Boldly confess without fear, because we have a God who understands. All of that's in Hebrews chapter 4. And by doing all of that, we actually put on the breastplate of righteousness, and that's one of the key pieces of spiritual armor that's laid out in the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. But I'm getting off topic. Jesus says here, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. One of the ways you can tell where your spiritual maturity is, is by what tastes good and what doesn't. What are you hungry and thirsty for? Even after we're saved, because our software is still encased in old hardware, all of the old programming is still running. So it's our natural function to hunger and thirst for what's not righteous. I mean, all of that's in us, folks. All of that old programming keeps running. But after we're saved and sealed by the Holy Spirit, there's new software running to counteract that. And that new software cannot be removed. It is sealed in there. And its primary function is to preserve your software, which is the real you, for a future upload into new hardware when the old hardware dies. But that new software has another function. It can reroute your thinking processes around the old defective sin virus. But that new software won't do it without your permission. It won't violate your free will. You have to choose to access it. And as time goes by, the more we access that new software, the more we will personally find that the old software is unappealing. Eventually, we will find that the very presence of that old software running inside our hardware is something that we detest. And that's a sign of spiritual maturity. You get to a point where emotionally and mentally you realize that it's not enough to just have the new software. We want that old software out of there. It's in the way. It's just like installing new software on an old computer to make it run faster. Eventually, you'd just rather have a new computer, right? That's what this is talking about. The more we use that new software, the more we're aware of the deficiencies of that old software that's stuck inside us to the extent that we just wish it wasn't there. And the more we spiritually mature, the more we're aware of our own unrighteousness. And the result of that is thirsting and hungering for righteousness. That's why Jesus is saying here, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. When? There's two levels. The more you hunger and thirst for righteousness, the more you're going to choose to access the new software to route around the sin virus. The more you do that, the more righteous you will be. But there's a second level, and that's when you finally die and the sin virus is abandoned inside your old body as you are uploaded into new hardware that doesn't have the sin virus. Folks, can you imagine what that feels like? I can't. I mean, I've tried to. I mean, absolute and total freedom. Emotional freedom, mental freedom, and even physical freedom. Wow. Anyway, these next few verses, blessed our verses, are cause and effect type realities. These aren't conditional promises. They're just facts of life. They're just you reap what you sow kind of verses. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. First of all, nowhere in the Bible will you find God making a heart clean or repairing a heart. It has to be replaced. God gives you a new heart when you're saved. But the point being made here is talking about motives, folks. You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. What are all the motives behind what you do or don't do? If your heart is after anything other than God, then you won't see Him in anything. This is just basic cause and effect. But if your heart is after God, then you'll see Him in everything, be it big or small. Be it a little silver lining in a situation or something huge, you'll see Him. Next verse. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, folks, who or what are the peacemakers? I'll give you a hint. It ain't war protesters who picket in front of the Pentagon or the White House. And it ain't the mediators of peace conferences held at the UN. That's not what this is talking about. Peacemakers are the makers of peace, the creators of peace. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26 will tell you what that's all about. The peace comes from you. If you're living and walking in the Holy Spirit, you're the one who's making and creating peace. If you're not living and walking in the Holy Spirit, then you're the one that's making and creating the opposite of peace. And Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 26 gets into all of that, explains it, and lays it all out. But I won't read that here. I'll let you get into that if you want. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now I want to focus on that last blessing, folks. First of all, I've known Christians who have taken that last blessing and used it to become obnoxious harpies. They're running around all over the place, shoving the Bible down people's throats, telling them that they're all going to hell, that they're not Christian enough, it's my way or the highway, God told me this, why don't you listen to me, blah, blah, blah. And when people get fed up with them and tell them to get lost or to go away or to shut up, then they take this verse and say, Aha, see, the Bible said, Blessed are you when men hate you for my sake. People like that are actually used by Satan more than they are by God. They're the same kind of people who got preachy about Jesus for healing people on the Sabbath day. But anyway, let me focus on the rest of us here concerning this last blessing. How many of you have lost friends who were unsaved just because you took the Bible seriously? You didn't become a harpy. You never even brought up your faith. Maybe once or twice. But because you read a Bible, they found out about it. You're a Christian now, and suddenly they have begun attempting to attack that side of you, even though you haven't done anything to provoke this. You're not out to change them, but boy, are they out to change you. And when they fail, what happens? Things get worse. They try harder. These are your so-called friends. Then it gets to the point where every single conversation leads to some form of attack against your faith. So eventually, one of two things happen. Either you get fed up and tell them off, to which they in turn expel you from their friendship, or you have to expel them from yours because it won't stop. They won't leave you alone. They're no longer your friends. They've made themselves your enemy who hates you. 
And some of you may have even lost Christian friends because you took the Bible more seriously than they did. You weren't out to change them, but they've expelled you from their inner circle because if you were a real Christian, then you'd be married by now with a successful career and 2.5 children. Why aren't you a successful lawyer or a successful doctor or a successful whatever, as though all of that is somehow a thermometer for where your spiritual maturity is? That's not what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount. But that doesn't fit into the mold of today's prosperity, Christians. Heaven forbid you trust the Lord for all of those things instead of going out there, grabbing the bull by the horns and getting it yourself. These are the same Christians who think the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is actually somewhere in the Bible. Not only is that not in the Bible, folks, but it's a message that opposes what the Bible teaches. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who've reached the end of themselves. Sometimes God drives you to the end of yourself because that's what it takes to get you to quit leaning on your own abilities, to quit leaning on your own understanding and start trusting Him. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice Matthew's record of Jesus' sermon here indicates Jesus is covering all kinds of ground. He's talking about the kingdom of God, which is heaven, and also the kingdom of heaven, which is to be the earth. Three mentions so far of the future kingdom on the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All three of those are talking about the future kingdom on the earth when Jesus takes over. But then this last part here, it says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward. In where? In heaven. I only bring this up to keep us from building walls between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. That just aren't there. Those walls are, I mean, one extreme is to assume that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are the same thing, when they're not. One is the Father's throne, the other is the Son's throne. The Father's throne exists now, and has always existed, and will always exist. The Son's throne doesn't exist yet, but will. And once it does, that kingdom will exist forever. Those two thrones are different and separate thrones. But the other extreme is to build walls between them. Some scholars say that all of this kingdom of heaven stuff, Jesus' rule on the earth, that it's for the Jews only. That it's Israel only, the Jews only. It's got nothing to do with the Gentile. The Gentile won't have anything to do with this. Well, there's nothing in the scripture to indicate that. The kingdom will be a Jewish kingdom. Yes, Jesus is Jewish. He's an heir of David, a Jewish king. He will be ruling on David's throne, a Jewish throne. And what is one of Jesus' titles concerning the kingdom? He's called the king of what? The king of Israel. But where do we get the idea that there's a wall between that kingdom and heaven? If there was, then Jesus wouldn't call it the kingdom of heaven, would he? There's no wall of separation there. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the Son's kingdom. But then he turns right around in the next verse and says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in where? In heaven. Now let's focus real quick on that word rejoice for a minute. What what do you mean rejoice? 
I mean, I can understand being comforted, but here in this last category, he turns it up a few notches. He's saying, if it's gotten to the point where your commitment has actually made you unpopular, men hate you and exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil, not because you're a religious harpy, not because you're an arrogant, judgmental Pharisee, but because you're actually a follower of Christ and Satan's turned up the heat to the extent that people hate you. It's gotten that bad. Jesus says to you, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. Folks, don't gloss over that word great. We use it all the time, but how great is great when Jesus is the one using that word? This is a guy who invented the Grand Canyon, Mount Everest, stars the size of our solar system, whole galaxies. I mean, you've got good, better, great. What impresses God to the extent that he would ever use the word great? Even in Genesis chapter 1, when he's creating the entire universe, he only uses the word good. God saw it, that it was good. <laughs> it's the universe. So what does Jesus mean here when he uses the word great? Whatever it is, Jesus is saying it's worthy of your jumping up and down out of rejoicing. Continuing on, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Boy, that's a famous verse. If you want, you can get into all of the properties of salt. A lot of scholars like to do that. But let's just focus on one property being the one that Jesus refers to. It's seasoning. It's flavoring. That's a good thing, folks. You are salt of the earth. You know, the point here is that life without Christ is flavorless. You know, where's the flavor? Where's the excitement? Where's the joy? Where's the adventure? Remember, this sermon is being addressed to Jesus' disciples who are already followers of Christ. The closer you follow Christ, the more flavor you add to the world. The less you follow Him, then the less flavor you have to offer. Now, does that mean you're no longer salt? No. But it does mean you're salt that's lost its flavor. And Jesus is saying here, what good is salt without flavor? Nothing. Because what do they do with salt that's lost its flavor? They throw it out. Now, does that mean that if you're a follower of Christ that's lost its flavor, you're going to hell? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that salt that has lost its flavor is no good. It's good for nothing. And the proof that it's good for nothing is that when salt loses its flavor, what do they do with it? They throw it away. The salt. So you are to be salt with flavor. And that's the point of this. Be seasoning for the earth to see. Bring it flavor. Don't be salt without flavor. Jesus continues in verse 14 with the same kind of theme here. He says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a lampstand instead, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. i got a question for you. Can your light shine before men if that light is only turned on once a week and even then hidden inside a building with a steeple on it? To the world that drives by, that building looks the same all week long, folks, whether it's full or empty. The parking lot might look a little different on Sunday mornings, but so what? They're not paying attention to that. Some churches spend hundreds of thousands of dollars separating themselves from the world. They build what they call family life centers. 
They build workout rooms, gymnasiums, tennis courts, bowling alleys. And they make it to where you can't go in there unless you're a member of that church. And their reasoning sounds ideal on the surface. You know, hey, I love to go bowling, but I don't like having to bowl around people who aren't saved. And and my kids shouldn't have to listen to some guy two lanes down cuss out the pins he didn't hit. Well, I can understand that. But at the same time, by doing all of that, you're building walls around the light. God loves that bowler who's cussing out the pins he didn't hit. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, don't get the good works confused with the light. The good works don't create the light. It's the light that creates the good works. It's a matter of where your heart is. That's the constant theme of this whole sermon. Continuing on, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And there it is, folks, a whammy of a verse. We've already quoted this verse in advance a few times. What does Jesus mean when he says the law and the prophets? He's talking about the Old Testament. The law is the first five books of Moses and some records following that. And the prophets are everything else. Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, on down the list. People were making the assumption back then, just as unfortunately a lot of Christians today make this same assumption, and it's wrong. They were making the assumption back then that God through Jesus Christ, was doing away with his old ways, the old laws, the old prophets, that God had somehow realized that he was being too harsh. And that's why he sent Jesus, to bring about a new system that's more tolerant and more forgiving. Jesus himself tells you right here, that's not true. The Old Testament is still in force today. There's two stages of its fulfillment. Stage one. Jesus says, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill. The prophets prophesied of both his first and second coming, folks. And the law demanded a blood sacrifice to pay for the penalty of sin. The law demanded a lot of things, in which the more you get into it, you'll find that particular archaic law being fulfilled at the cross. Stage two of its fulfillment, Jesus says, Till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. In the Hebrew alphabet, a jot and a tittle was equivalent to our crossing of a T or dotting of an I. Jesus is saying, Not one T cross or I dot will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You go back and study Leviticus you'll find all kinds of weird stuff that we today have no idea what it's talking about. But Israel did. They had to practice it for thousands of years. Then Jesus comes along and fulfills it in an even bigger way. All of Jesus' titles spoken of in the New Testament that we're familiar with, those titles are originally found in the Old Testament law. He is the Lamb of God. He's our High Priest. He's our Avenger of Blood. He's our city of refuge. He's our kinsman redeemer. All of those titles won't make any sense to you unless you understand the Old Testament law. And he's not finished, folks. There's a second coming that hasn't happened yet. There's a title deed to the land. 
All of that's in the Old Testament. Jesus purchased it at the cross. He'll reclaim what he purchased at his second coming. Today, we tend to think of ourselves as living under a New Testament system and that the Old Testament is no longer relevant. That's not true. If you're in Jesus Christ, the law is being kept right now. It's not being done away with or cast aside. You and I can't possibly keep the law, so Jesus kept it for us all the days of his life. And then he paid the penalty for breaking the law, even though he kept it. The Old Testament law required that a sacrifice had to be spotless and without blemish. Jesus was clean. But he volunteered to be two things. One, a spotless sacrifice without blemish. And two, a member of the human race to represent the human race to God the Father. And because he's a human being, because he's our kin, he's called our kinsman redeemer. All of that can be found in the Old Testament, written out in detail. And that's just the law. What about the prophets? Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and all of the other prophets are full of prophecies that deal with both Jesus' first and second comings. Jesus has only come once, folks. He's got a second trip before all of those prophecies can be fulfilled. Old Testament. I'm not even bringing up the New Testament. That's in the Old Testament. And that's just barely scratching the surface. Jesus is the keeper of the law. It's through him that we have our righteousness. Without him, our righteousness is as filthy rags. And Jesus is about to drive that point home with the rest of this chapter. If you don't know the context of the rest of this chapter, boy, is it scary. This is Jesus proclaiming to his followers what God views as acceptable conduct. Anything less than what is described here is totally unacceptable. There's no leeway, no get-out-of-jail-free card. This is how it's supposed to be, period. But as we go through the rest of this chapter, it will increasingly become obvious that no man in all of earth history has ever even come close to meeting the requirements laid out in the rest of this chapter. No man except for one. Our spotless sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And I think that's the real point behind what Jesus says in the rest of this chapter. This is God himself raising the bar. And it's raised so high that only through Jesus Christ can it be met. And if you don't believe me, peek ahead to the end of the chapter. Jesus says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That almost sounds like blasphemy, doesn't it? Didn't Satan get in trouble for thinking he could do this? Didn't he say, I will be like the Most High? That's when God found pride in his heart and cast him out of heaven, and the whole war between God and Satan got started. But here Jesus is telling you, be perfect, just like God. Is he serious? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that by keeping the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, not only in your mind, but in your heart, all the days of your life, you will be perfect, just like God. That's what the Old Testament law lays out. And that's how to be perfect. As followers of Christ, we have the help of the Holy Spirit to perform it out. That perfection is the goal. In the rest of these verses, Jesus is going to amplify it. It is what God demands for acceptable behavior and conduct. Because God himself is perfect and cannot tolerate imperfection. If he could, then he himself would no longer be perfect. And we've gotten all of this before. Only perfection can enter heaven. It's got an awesome firewall around it. Imperfection cannot get through. So be perfect just like God. That's what Jesus said. Is he serious? I said yes and no. Here's the no part. Jesus already knows that we can't. 
That's why he came to perform that perfection on our behalf. That's why right before he goes into all of this on what it means to be perfect, he starts it off with the statement, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Let's keep going. Verse 19. It says, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, this is getting ridiculous. The Pharisees were professional law keepers. The rigid, hardcore legalists. Jesus is saying, that's nothing. You've got to be even more righteous than them. How in the world can you be more righteous than the professional, rigid, legalist, hardcore law keepers? How? I mean, folks, they took the Ten Commandments and turned them into a thousand. The Pharisees may have been wrong for doing that, but these Pharisees actually did follow their own rules. They were legalists, but they followed their own legalism. They were so obsessed with keeping the law that they not only kept the law to the best of their ability, they came up with dozens of all of these other unnecessary rules and regulations for each law to prevent even coming close to breaking the law, just in case. Jesus is saying, you've got to go further than that. You have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. How in the world would you even define what it means to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Let's keep reading. Jesus explains, verse 21. You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever kills shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoa! Some of you might think, well, when I'm angry, it's usually for a good reason. Jesus said angry without a cause, so I'm good. Actually, that phrase, without a cause, isn't in the original Greek. Some scholars disagree, but they're in the minority. You look at the original language, Jesus didn't put that comfortable little buffer in there. Whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And that phrase, shall be in danger of the judgment, in the original language is even tougher. It says, shall be liable and unable to escape judgment. And then the rest of this verse, plus four verses on, is under the category of anger. It's different examples of anger and what Jesus says you should do about it. But all of this, Jesus classifies it under the commandment against murder. This is what Jesus means by exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is going beyond the external action of law-breaking and getting into emotions. How many of you think you can control your emotions 100% of the time? Now, from this point right here in the sermon, right here, that's chapter 5, verse 21, from here all the way to the end of the chapter is Jesus being dead serious on the one hand while at the same time being sarcastic. You have to understand that Jesus is addressing those who are already saved. They are not in danger of the judgment. What the rest of this chapter is, is Jesus explaining the law to an extent that even the Pharisees didn't comprehend. Humanity is a fallen and imperfect race. That imperfection cannot enter heaven, period. Only perfect righteousness can enter heaven. 
And that righteousness isn't external only. It's internal. And the Pharisees didn't get that. That's why he started this off by saying, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you won't make it. So you've got some work to do. You have a choice. You can either accomplish that righteousness yourself, or you can accept Jesus' righteousness as a substitute for yours. Paul's letters talk about that. They talk about being clothed in his righteousness, not yours, his. Let his righteousness represent you, or you can attempt to achieve righteousness on your own. God does give us that choice. It's called free will. But to anyone who thinks they can accomplish this on their own, and the Pharisees were among that group, to anyone who wants to accomplish the necessary righteousness on their own to get into heaven, Jesus lays out how to achieve it right here in the rest of this chapter. So if you're interested in accomplishing your own righteousness, pay attention and take notes. Because if you've screwed up in any way from this verse to the end of the chapter, it's already too late for you. Verse 21, You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever kills shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, that's an old word for idiot. Whoever says to his brother, you idiot, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Oh boy, am I in trouble. I just retired a political talk show where I spent three years calling our politicians idiots. But anyway, verse 23. There is when you are offering your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother has a grievance against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First make peace with your brother, and then come back and present your gift. That's getting into the whole Jewish temple worship system they had back then. Verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are in the way with him lest at any time your adversary delivers you to the judge, and the judge delivers you to the officer, and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not be released until you have paid the last fraction of a penny. He's not saying reach across the aisle and always agree with your enemies. He's saying that while you're in his way. You know, when I read this, it's as though you're on a sidewalk and he's standing right in front of you. Just get him out of the way, you know. What's the point of being right if you wind up in prison? That's the feel of this verse. All of this under the category of murder in God's eyes. Murder of the heart. And notice Jesus keeps saying, I say to you, I say to you, he says. He quotes what's commonly thought. Some cases it's the old Mosaic law. But then he says, but I say to you. He's putting himself up on a level higher than Moses, folks. He's saying he's the lawgiver and he's the interpreter of that law. I'm telling you what it means. Okay, that's murder. Clearly, we're all guilty of murder in God's eyes. Now, here comes another commandment we probably don't think we're guilty of, at least I hope not, and that's adultery. Verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Guilty as charged, folks. And I remember back in high school, we had a Sunday school teacher that tried to make us feel better about this and told us, well, this is talking about constant, continual lust. If you look at her and keep looking at her, well, that sounds nice, but that's not what Jesus said, is it? God is outside time. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Well, if that's true, then a second is as a thousand seconds, and a thousand seconds is as a second. What does the amount of time spent in that lust have to do with anything? And there's something else here that blew my mind when I read this. Notice Jesus doesn't condemn this as fornication of the heart. He goes all the way and calls it adultery. 
We Christians love to make ourselves feel better with various definitions of different sins that are listed in the Bible. You know, sex outside of marriage is wrong because it's fornication, but it's not adultery. It's only adultery if you're married and the person you're having sex with isn't your spouse. Or the person you're with is married and you're not their spouse. That's adultery. But if we're both unmarried, then it's just fornication. That's a sin too, but at least it's not adultery. Well, tell that to Jesus, because here in this verse, he said, whoever. He didn't say married, but whoever looks at a woman. Didn't say married woman, but a woman. And lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why would Jesus call it adultery? Because sex is something that is only meant to be shared between a man and his wife. If you're not her husband, or if she isn't your wife, then it's adultery. That blew me away when I first realized this. And now things are even tougher. You're committing adultery in your heart if you even look at a woman with lust. I'm not married, and she isn't my wife, so I've committed adultery in the heart. Let's keep reading. You have heard that it was said by them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out and throw it away. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than that your whole body should be thrown into hell. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than that your whole body should be thrown into hell. You have got to be kidding! Folks, he can't possibly be serious, can he? I guess it depends on who's listening. If you're saved and you're wearing his righteousness, then your whole body is in no danger of being thrown into hell. But if you're not saved, and if you have no intentions of being saved, but you still want to escape hell, then this is how. Don't get angry. Don't lust after anyone ever unless you're married and it's your spouse that you're lusting after. And if you don't think you can manage that 100% of the time, then just to be saved, pluck out your eyes and cut off your hands. Then maybe you might make it. That's what Jesus is saying. And people say Jesus didn't have a sense of humor. It gets worse. Verse 31. It has been said, whoever puts away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say to you, that whoever puts away his wife, except for the cause of fornication... He causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries her commits adultery. Now, this verse, folks, makes a lot of people nervous, but don't forget the context of this. Just one verse prior, Jesus said, To prevent yourself from sinning, cut off your hand and pluck out your eye. I would think that verse would make you more nervous than this one. But what Jesus is describing here in this series of verses is behavior that is absolute in its perfection. This is totally flawless, perfect behavior of the heart mind and body. This isn't like the book of Proverbs where it compares and contrasts the differences between foolish behavior and wise behavior. That's not what this is. This is Jesus laying out what it means to be perfect. He's amplifying what he meant when he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we'll get into the whole business of marriage and divorce when Jesus gets into a conversation about this later on in Matthew. So there's really no point in spending too much time on that here because that's not what this verse is really all about. Keep it in context. People have taken this verse out of context to put divorced women under a guilt trip. You know, it's funny, nobody ever takes the prior verse out of context to make people feel guilty for not cutting off their hands. But they'll take this one. I've actually known women 
who were afraid to remarry after their husband left them because of this verse. Even after the husband who left them has married somebody else. They say, in God's eyes, I'm still married to him, so I can't remarry. It would be adultery in God's eyes. Unfortunately, folks, technically, she's right. But it's missing the point. In that verse, the woman hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus is addressing the men who divorce her. And he's saying, if you throw her away, except for the cause of fornication, in other words, if she's sleeping around, then she's committing adultery already anyway. But if she's not committing adultery, and you divorce her, then you cause her to commit adultery, and you cause the man she marries to commit adultery. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not talking to women who've been divorced and saying, you better not marry again, because if you do, you'll be committing adultery. He's telling the men, when you divorce your wives, you cause them to commit adultery. It's your fault. If you want to shift blame, blame it on the man. Jesus did. He's telling them, you cause them to commit adultery. The point of this verse isn't to keep a divorced woman single. It's to keep the man from divorcing her to begin with. It's amazing to me the twisting and the turning that we do to make ourselves feel righteous in God's eyes. You can go to one of two extremes. You can twist and turn yourself out of guilt and fear and put yourself in a self-made prison attempting to perform on your own righteousness that is pleasing in God's sight, which you can't possibly do. Or you can twist and turn the scriptures to make them say things that they don't say to make yourself feel righteous in God's eyes. You know, we hear that phrase a lot, in God's eyes. This is the way so-and-so really is in God's eyes. Be careful. When you start talking about the way things are in God's eyes, because when you do, you are talking about the vision of one who is totally flawless in perfection and righteousness and one who sees everything. The deepest thoughts of your heart, every little intricate detail. Be very careful when you start saying, well, in God's eyes, be careful. If you've been happily married with a Christian for 50 years, but you had a one-night stand with somebody else before then, then in God's eyes, you were married to that one-night stand, and you spent the last 50 years in sin. If you waited and didn't lose your virginity until you were married, you still lose. Because before you were married, at some point in time, you must have lusted after somebody somewhere at some time. And when you did, you had sex with them in your heart, in God's eyes. Don't throw around that phrase, in God's eyes, too often, or you'll get burned. Don't use it as an excuse to get away with something that the Bible clearly teaches against. And on the other hand, don't use it to imprison yourself when Jesus died on the cross to free you from that prison. You're to put on His righteousness, not yours. Josh, are you saying that it's okay to sin because of the cross? No, that's not what I'm saying. It's never okay to sin. What I'm saying is that sinning is inevitable. You don't think it's inevitable when you read the Ten Commandments, but then here comes Jesus to amplify those Ten Commandments. And it's a shocking discovery to realize that every man, woman, and child that has ever walked the earth has broken all ten of those laws. If you thought you had never committed murder, Jesus says, yes, you have. If you've ever been angry at your brother, you committed murder in your heart. If you thought you had never committed adultery, Jesus says, yes, you have. If you've ever had lust for anyone in your heart. Every man, woman, and child that has ever walked the earth has broken all ten of those laws. The book of Romans gets into all of that. No one is righteous, it says. 
But there is one exception. There is one man who walked the earth who did perform this level of absolute perfect righteousness. And that's the man who's giving this sermon. Folks, up until now, Jesus has been promoting grace to Nicodemus, the woman at the well. Example after example, Jesus doesn't talk about behavior. He talks about faith. He talks about spiritual rebirth and being saved by faith. And he had been promoting it so well that people thought Jesus was trying to destroy the Old Testament law. And that's what started this whole string of verses here, folks. Jesus says, think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. He's saying, I will fulfill it. Me. I am to fulfill the letter of the law. Why? Because unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's why. And that's what verse 20 all the way down to the end of the chapter is about, folks. What it really means to follow the law. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, do not bind yourselves by an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Ooh. And do not swear by your own head, for you are not able to make a single hair white or black. Let your yes simply be yes, and let your no simply be no. Anything more than that comes from evil. I guess if you were to spend your entire life doing this, folks, then people wouldn't need an oath from you because you never lie. If people are constantly asking you, do you swear? Do you swear, Josh? And that's not a very good compliment to your word. But on the other hand, we do live in a dishonest world. It doesn't matter how honest you are. People who don't know you don't know that they can trust you, so you have to make an oath, especially in a court of law. I should have researched before doing this if anyone has ever told a judge that they would tell the truth, but they wouldn't swear to tell the truth because of this verse. But anyway, verse 38, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil man who injures you. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Folks, this is radical stuff. But before we're finished with the whole gospel account, you'll notice that that is exactly what Jesus did. To Judas who betrayed him, the soldiers who arrested him, and even to the ones who put the nails in his hands. And folks, I have to be honest, this is one of those verses I just really wish wasn't here. Because I can't possibly see myself ever obeying this verse. Ever. And yet, Jesus doesn't really give me a choice. I still have my free will. And, of course, all of my sins are paid for on the cross. But to not do what Jesus says here is a sin. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. Now, some have taken this verse and actually broadened it to an extent that's not biblical. I mean, left alone the way it is. It's, I mean, it's radical enough. Somebody hits you, offer them your other cheek. But what if it isn't your cheek that's in danger of being hit, but somebody else's? Do you offer up their cheek? No. It's not your cheek to offer up. It's theirs. I bring this up because some people believe war against a nation that's attacked you is against this verse. 
No, it's not. Protecting others who can't defend themselves is a noble act. And we'll find Jesus saying something to that effect here before long. This isn't talking about not going to war or not getting into a fight to defend someone else who's defenseless. If it was, then Jesus would be disobeying it himself when he comes back in the future to defend Israel. A lot of blood going to be shed in those days by Jesus himself. He didn't lift a finger during his first visit to defend his own flesh. But in the second coming, he certainly will to defend Israel. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evil man who injures you. But whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak also. The Amplified brings out in the Greek, instead of your coat, it was your tunic, which was the equivalent to your undershirt. He's saying if anyone wants to sue and take the underwear off of you, let him have your coat also. And if anyone compels you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who asks of you. And from him who would borrow from you, don't turn away. See, folks, the idea behind all of this is who's really in control of your life? If you're a follower of Christ, then he's in control. Let him worry about your cheek. Let him worry about your cloak. If you're a follower of Christ, then everything you have was his to give you, and it's his to take away. That's the idea behind all of this. Your life is in his hands, so all of your needs are his problems, not yours. And you're to react to every circumstance with his love. That's the idea. Something else, when you get into the regular habit of looking at life that way, looking at your circumstances that way, and looking at everything that way, it completely changes who you are. Blessings that you didn't even notice before become visible. Freedoms that you've always had that you didn't notice before are suddenly made visible. Suddenly they're right there in front of you. Problems are put in a perspective that you never had before. And with all of this comes a feeling of invincibility that's indescribable. The awareness of God's personal and continuing care is brought close. You can feel his presence. You can feel him around you. It completely changes everything. The more we try to control things, the more we realize that we can't control it, and the more out of control it gets, and that's where all the chaos comes from. But the more we leave it up to him, the more peace, and that's the whole idea. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow. You know, there have been occasions while in prayer, a few names have popped in my head, names of people who were always a problem, and occasionally I might have a moment where I'm looking at them with God's eyes, not my own, and I feel sorry for them, and I begin to pray for them. This doesn't happen too often, folks, I'll admit that, but it has happened, and what motivates it is God's love moving through you. It's not your love, it's His love, it's God's love moving through your own heart. Suddenly, they have no power over you. All of the wrongs that they've ever done seem so insignificant. It's in those moments that it becomes easy to obey this verse. But I'll admit, this isn't a consistent habit of mine, as it should be. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, when I read this, it reminds me of another phrase that's mentioned several times throughout the Scripture, Hebrews chapter 10, Romans 12, and so many other places where it says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I actually got to see that verse in action many years ago. Someone close to me had her home broken into by her ex-husband. 
He went into the dining room and broke several dishes on the floor. Not only did he destroy several dishes that were antiques, but he damaged the floor where he hit it so hard with all the dishes. He had done stuff like this before. This wasn't new. So I counseled her to call the police and press charges. They'd been divorced for almost a decade. He broke into her home. That's a crime. And he caused malicious damage. That's a crime. Call the police and press charges. This has got to stop. So she did. An arrest was made. He was bailed out, and he hired a lawyer who contacted hers and offered a deal. If she would drop the charges, he would financially compensate her for the damaged floor and the dishes. So she talked with me about it, and I told her, no, you don't want to do that. This isn't about the money. This is about him breaking into your home and destroying your property whenever he feels like it. He's done this kind of stuff before. This has got to stop. So then she thought about that, and then she prayed about it. And then she came back to me and she said that she was going to go ahead and accept the deal and drop the charges. Well, I went ballistic. So I was like, you've got to be kidding. But she said she prayed about it and remembered that vengeance belongs to the Lord. That accepting this deal wasn't giving in like I said it was. She would be recompensated for the damage that was done. The floor would be fixed and the dishes would be appraised and paid for. That's justice. If he's willing to do that, what would be the point of not dropping the charges? And I said, well, to keep him from doing this again, to make him see that he can't get away with this, that he can't just do whatever he wants and come over here to your house and break in like it's his. That's a crime. He needs to pay for that crime. This isn't just about the floor and the dishes. It's about the act itself. You might get the dishes and the floor paid for, but that doesn't pay for the act itself, the fact that it happened. But she said, Josh, I've already forgiven him for all of that. That's in God's hands now. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'm not interested in getting revenge. If he's willing to pay for the dishes that he broke and the floor that he damaged, that's eye for an eye. That's fair. I didn't let him get away with it. I called the cops. He was arrested, and now he's paying for it. What you're wanting, Josh, is revenge. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what I want, because that's the way it has to be. That's the way he is. That's what it's going to take to get through his dense skull that he can't do stuff like this. But she said, Josh, I prayed long and hard about this. The deal is a fair deal. He'll pay for the floor he damaged. He'll pay for the dishes that he broke, and that's enough. Everything else is in God's hands. I prayed about it, Josh. I did. And I kept hearing that verse in my head over and over again. It said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Well, how do you argue with that, folks? I mean, I tried. But how do you really argue with that? I went home mad because I didn't like where she went with this. I didn't really believe that this was the result of long, hard prayer. I believed that she was just cowering down to him like she had done before. So when I got home, I did need some praying. Because I was really concerned for her safety, and I was greatly angered by what had happened. And I told God, I said, Lord, you and I know what her ex-husband is capable of. And here we are, we finally have him in a situation where he will finally pay for his actions. This deal to pay for the dishes and the floor, that's typical power trip stuff. He'll agree to pay for all that if she drops the charges. Please, he'll pay for it anyway because he's committed a crime. He needs to be nailed to the wall. And you know that, Lord, and I know that. So I don't think you told her to drop the charges like she says. I think she's just saying that because that's what she wants to do. But if you did tell her to drop the charges then, and then all of a sudden the words popped into my mind, you stay out of it. This is between me and her. If I told her to drop the charges, then you have nothing to say about it. And then, of course, I straightened up. Well, yeah, God, if, if you really did tell her to drop the charges, then, yeah, you're right. It's none of my business. So I straightened right up. It's funny how God will throw a brick in your head once in a while. Anyway, she did. She dropped the charges, and then he made arrangements to pay for the dishes and the damage to the floor, which he did. But here's what we didn't know. What we didn't know 
was that while all of this was going on, the district attorney was watching all of this from behind the scenes. He examined the police reports. He was reading all of the testimonies, looked at the pictures. He kept up with what was going on back and forth. And once the charges had been dropped, the district attorney took over, filed his own charges against him, and cleaned his clock. He lost everything. So if you really want to get back at somebody, folks, I mean really want to get back at them, forgive them and see what God does. You may never see what God does. We were fortunate to see it, and I think that might have been God's way of showing me how important it is to do exactly, precisely what God says when he says it and lean not on your own understanding. That was 10 or 15 years ago, and uh, he hasn't been a problem since. Neat little story, but even her willingness to forgive still pales in comparison to what Jesus is talking about here. He says, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, to show that you are the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he makes the rain fall upon the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward can you have? Don't even the publicans do the same? The publicans, folks, were the reviled, sinful, thieving tax collectors. And it's kind of neat that Matthew would record this, him being a former publican. But anyway, let's continue. Jesus says, And if you greet and salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans do the same? Now, folks, in this last verse here, um, this isn't a too big a deal, but I have noticed while cross-referencing this last verse with all of the other modern translations, for some reason, I can't figure out what it is, but instead of saying publicans, they either say Gentile, pagan, or heathen. I haven't been able to figure out why they do that, because in the original Greek, both times, in both verse 47 and 48, Jesus used the tax collector's official title as a derogatory example. Don't get me wrong, the newer translations aren't really changing the point of the verse. I just can't figure out why they're taking liberties here. I don't have a problem with them changing words to help communicate the original, but don't do it if you don't have to. I guess they did it because Jesus already used the word publicans once in verse 47. And since he did that, they felt he was being too repetitive by using it again in verse 48. So they took the liberty to change it to Gentile or pagan or heathen because he does use that elsewhere. I guess that's where they get their permission to do this. But anyway, the point is, if you only love those who love you, and if you're only kind to those who are kind to you back, then how are you any different from anybody else? Even the thieving scoundrels who were the tax collectors of that time loved those who loved them back. And then Jesus finishes this segment of his sermon off with this killer verse. Verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, folks, how many of you really believe that Jesus really thinks that any of us are capable of being perfect just as the Father in heaven is perfect? You know, I can imagine among the people who were there listening, a lot of them must have been taking notes. And as Jesus goes down the list, they're writing down every single word, thinking to themselves, okay, this is going to be tough, but I can do this. It won't be easy, but I think I can do this. And then as Jesus gets further and further and further into this sermon, some of these people's hands start to sweat while they're writing this down. And then when Jesus says that anger is murder of the heart, you hear about ten pencils hit the floor. The rest keep writing. Then Jesus says lust is adultery of the heart. And you hear about 20 other pencils hit the floor. 
And this keeps happening over and over again until finally you get down here towards the end. There's maybe 10 or 20 people left writing all of this down. 10 or 20 noble, righteous human beings who have a heart bent towards pleasing God and being as righteous as they possibly can. And then Jesus says, love your enemies. I mean, that's radical. And then all but two people drop their pencils at that point. Matthew being one, because we have this recorded. There may have been one person convoluted enough into thinking that he could actually accomplish and obey everything Jesus just said, thinking, well, this is going to be really, really tough. I mean, my whole life is going to have to change. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but if I work hard at this enough and keep this list pasted to my bedroom door and look at it every day, I think I might be able to do this. And then Jesus says, be perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then finally, Matthew's the only one left writing. Jesus said, think not that I have come to destroy the law. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. I, not we, not us, I have come to fulfill the law. For truly I tell you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Why? Because unless your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's why. And I think that's where we're going to leave it for this week, folks. Give you some time to sweat it out. Don't sweat too much, though. If you're really feeling guilty and scared right about now, read the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, and you'll get a good night's sleep. It's only around five pages long, and it settles this whole issue of salvation by faith alone and not by works, deeds, or actions. Next week, we'll finish off the rest of Matthew's report of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Until then, we're out of here.